The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. I'm, I'm aware that I've been talking all day. <laughs> We're going to talk some more. Um, and then it will be your turn. There's something about the theme of clouds and water that, um, that speaks to me and I was also remembering that Ajahn Chah, some of you uh, will know who that is, the wonderful um, Buddhist monk, Buddhist master uh, from Thailand, who was a teacher of Jack Cornfield and many others. And it was said that the first time that Ajahn Chah came to the West, might have been in England, he saw snow and he looked at it and he said, oh, that's the sawdust of water. <laughs> Isn't that great? Snow is the sawdust of water. Um, water can take different shapes, different forms, different qualities, different consistencies. It can be a liquid, it can be a cloud, it can be ice. Um, and it's but it's but it's all it's all the same substance. It's made of the same thing. So from one perspective there's a sort of equality there's a sameness to water. And then from this other perspective, there's this amazing diversity, you know. And that, in a way, is a little bit like um, our practice. You know, we usually, we're in the world of diversity, where we're noticing differences, and that's useful. Um, and then something about practice helps us to see the um, something to see through the differences to see the substance the fabric of what things are and um, so we can hold both if we're only in the world of difference and diversity, um, maybe we're missing something. Maybe we're, we're too much on the side of form and we're missing the, that empty nature. And if we're only in the world of emptiness, um, that's not quite it either. It's like if we're only in this world of where everything is equal, everything is of the same 
substance, then we miss a certain richness. We miss the beauty of the particularity of each existence, of the absolute value of something. So, um, in working with impermanence, in practicing with impermanence, the request is to see through the difference, to see through the content of the story to the substance. You know, and in seeing that substance, there can be a deep release. Um, it's like, oh, I, th- I, th- I thought there was something more to it than just this difference. And you, you start to see, um, you know, that the, that the waves are um, not separate from the ocean. The waves are an expression of the ocean. Um, and then, in seeing that, um, we can have a different relationship to the waves. We can have a different relationship to all the different forms that water can take, and appreciating them and, and using them when they're useful. You know, it's nice to have ice cubes in my iced tea. <laughs> it's nice to have uh, snow when we want to go. Uh, skiing. Um, so, in that way, it's like coming to meet impermanence, understand impermanence, um, takes us through and takes us back to ourselves, back to our life, and to maybe we can appreciate it in a new way. I think one of the challenging aspects of the teachings on impermanence is that as human beings we have this um, it's like something we know but it's also something that has the potential and probably already has brought a lot of pain, brought a lot of difficulty. So it's often a truth that is um, pushed out of conscious awareness and it's operating in the background. Um, Someone has said that um, human beings, I don't know if this is true, but as, as, as human beings are the only animals who are aware of their mortality and, and the sort of dissonance that that creates. Um, there's a famous story that uh, Suzuki Roshi, who was the founding teacher of the San Francisco Zen Center, he was asked by a student to sum up all of the teachings of the Buddha in one word. (laughs) And he thought for a moment and he said, 
everything changes. You know, just two words, but it's one word in Japanese, one word in Pali, you know, anicca. Everything changes. And so this is, this is something that runs through the heart of, um, of the Buddha's teaching, runs through the heart of our experience, maybe, as, as human beings. And, but there's even something a little bit abstract, a little bit separate when we say everything changes. It's like, oh yeah, you know, things change, everything changes. Um, one of my teachers in a talk formulated it in a somewhat different way and um, it got my attention and he said no it's not everything changes he said everything dies everything dies I said hmm <laughs> well that doesn't sound as <laughs> fun <laughs> um, and so there's something about impermanence and something about um, the truth of the impermanence of this body that brings it closer, that brings it home in a way that it's not just abstract that, you know, the stars change into the this and that. Um, and, and this reflection, reflection on loss, reflection on um, what's called maranasati, mindfulness of death, is considered, um, or was, was called by the Buddha, um, the elephant's footprint. You know, just as the elephant's footprint is large enough that it holds all the other animals. You know, it can contain the footprints of all the other animals. Um, this reflection maybe has the possibility to um, hold all of the other practices, all of the other truths. Um, On the, on the idea that this is something that we're aware of, but often not consciously. Um, one teacher I know has, has talked about something called terror management theory. I don't know if anyone's heard of terror management theory. And the idea is that um, as so, so they did a study, and, and the study was um, finding ways to remind people about mortality, finding ways to remind people about um, their own deaths. So they take the participants, and, you know, and the participants didn't know um, what, was the, what was going on necessarily, but they might walk them through a cemetery on the way to something or, or have some other way of... Of, of reminding them. Uh, and then they would ask them questions and look at their um, views and opinions. And it turned out that um, 
those participants who were reminded of mortality, there was a way that their views afterwards became, um, I don't know how to say, hardened. It's like they became more nationalistic, more racist, more, um, just more, more kind of closed and tight. And, and, and the idea or the, the, the proposition from these scientists is they said that when we are reminded of our mortality, um, we begin to look for defenses. We begin to look for ways that we can protect ourselves. And it's unconscious, this unconscious process. And it's fascinating, you know. Um, so this terror management theory, how do, how do we as people manage the terror, maybe, of, you know, of, of mortality, of death? Um, and I think there's something very human in this impulse to protect ourselves. You know, in a, in a world that is unstable, that's, that's, uh, that's in many ways out of our control, um, where do we find security? Where, how can we be happy when the things of the world are not so dependable? Um, and so in a way, this tracks a little bit, or maybe a lot, of the story of the Buddha's life. Um, it, I was very interested to learn, and it was something that's not in a lot of the um, shorter biographies of the Buddha, that the Buddha's mother passed away when he was very young. You know, I think when he was one, one years old or two years old or something. Isn't that interesting, you know, um, that... It's like, what can be, in a way, more um, destabilizing for a child than to lose his mother at such a young age and to have this truth of impermanence so um, real? Um, one psychologist has called that kind of early loss in childhood a primal agony, a primal agony of, um, you know, this kind of loss. And then if you look at the Buddha's uh, childhood, he was um, literally in a palace and protected. You know, or, or his 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 father, or his 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 caregivers. You know, maybe today we would say they were the ultimate um, helicopter parents. <laughs> I have two young children, so I can relate to this. You know, this impulse to protect, to shield, to um, keep out something that's. Um, painful and difficult and unsettling and, and, and sort of preserve a kind of innocence. And so the Buddha was, was in this palace and was protected. 
And so it's said that he was protected from these messengers of impermanence. He was not allowed to see an aged person, a very old person. He was not allowed to see illness in a very sick person. And he was not allowed to see um, a corpse or a dead body. And so, I mean, when we think about it, it's sort of, there's something, um, you know, maybe there's something relatable in that of a child who had gone through such an early trauma and then this wish to almost like over, overprotect, over, you know, just, okay, well, um, we won't let him see anything to do with this kind of suffering. Um, you know, and maybe there's a way that perhaps not as extreme, but we, we build kind of palaces of refuge against impermanence. You know, we take refuge in our, our things. We take refuge in um, endless self-improvement <laughs> projects. <laughs> um, green juices, maybe. I mean, those, those are good, but I don't know. Um, and maybe the, maybe the ultimate way we look for security or we look for refuge is in our mental world, the world of our thoughts, the world of our, you know, I know for myself, if I can think about the future and plan it out, <laughs> then that's a sort of bulwark against the unknown, the uncertainty. Um, forgetting that things never go <laughs> according to how we plan them. But um, there's something so inviting about planning. It's a, it's a bomb for a kind of anxiety. Um, and the interesting thing about our mental world and our, um, our thinking is that mental objects don't change. They're not impermanent in the way that things in the world are. So we can have the same thought again and again and again. <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, so, as a practice, the Buddha offered some reflections that I believe <coughs> are meant to counter this, um, this sort of human tendency towards uh, delusion or human tendency towards forgetting, um, towards assuming a kind of permanence and continuity. So the Buddha said, these are the five facts that one should reflect on often, whether one is a man or a woman, 
whether one is a monk or a nun or a lay person. I am sure to become old. I have not gone beyond aging. I am sure to become sick. I have not gone beyond sickness. I am sure to die. I have not gone beyond death. I must be separated and parted from all that is dear and beloved to me. And so these are the four that are pointing back to this nature, this nature of the body, and this nature of our situation that is um, as much as we may cherish the uh, things of the world, including ourselves, our bodies, our relationships, um, it's reminding us that these won't last forever. They will change. They will, we will be separated. Um, and the point is not to depress us, not to, you know, get us to just what's, give up and say, what's the point? You know, why even have relationships if, if it's going to end like this? Um, but maybe it's to um, appreciate, learn to appreciate our life in a different way. Um, so the fifth of these reflections is, I am the owner of my actions, heir of my actions. Actions are the womb from which I have sprung. Actions are my relations. Actions are my protections. Whatever actions I do, good or bad, of these I shall become the heir. These I shall inherit. And this is, a, I, this is very interesting because it's pointing to, maybe, to the agency that we do have. That, um, yes, there is impermanence. Yes, the nature of our body and of our mind and all of the things that we identify with have this nature of change. But we are not victims in this situation. We are not... Um, we don't need to be at the mercy of impermanence. The agency that we have, the power that we have, comes through our actions. And what it points towards, maybe, is this other conception of what it means to be human and what it means to live a good life. That it's not so much about the inherent existence of me, who's separate from all of you, who I need to protect and defend and beautify and promote and um, prop up and all these things. But um, who I am is really a question of functioning. It's a question of actions. You know, and I think this is something that many of us can relate to. It's like, if I ask you, who are you, um, you might answer in terms of the roles you, you perform, 
how you function in your life, in the world. Oh, I'm a teacher, a parent, a son, a mother. Um, and um, so this functioning is, um, is, is, is how practice can be possible. You know, that we, through mindfulness, <coughs> through, through mindfulness, through um, this process of opening the heart, we get more and more choice about how we act, the ways we act. It, mindfulness gives us choice where we might not have had choice before. I think that's one of the great powers of mindfulness. And it may be subtle. It's like, you know, oh, I didn't react when my child did something really irritating. You know, and I usually would be just like, stop it, you know. Could take a breath and I could somehow see, oh, yes, that is really irritating. And yes, she's really tired right now. And actually, rather than having some lecture or form of discipline, um, maybe she needs a hug, you know? And not that that's always the right answer, but it's, we have more choice, you know, it gives us this space to choose how to express, how to enact something. Um, The other thing I love about the story of the Buddha is that you know, as the story goes, the Buddha did all of these intensive, really hardcore practices, you know, of starvation and physical, um, extreme physical sort of punishment of the body and still wasn't getting where he wanted to go, wasn't getting the results he wanted. And in a certain moment, he remembered being a boy. And he remembered when he was a boy and sitting under the rose apple tree, um, a certain kind of joy arose in him that was not the result of some extreme practice, but it was just the natural joy of being present. And it was a joy that was intrinsic to who he was. And, you know, maybe we could say it was the joy of non-doing, the joy of surrender. Um, and and, he, and he, he had that memory and he said, oh, maybe this is the way to go. Maybe it's not so much about trying to create something or get something that I don't already have, but it's about um, being present enough to allow something that's already here 
to bubble up, you know, and, and, and that was, um, and that was the night that he uh, sat in this way and opened to uh, the joy that um, didn't need to be created, that didn't, that was, that was part of the fabric of being, part of the fabric of, of who he was. Um, there's <coughs> so as the story goes, the Buddha looked up at the morning star. You know, he sat all night, and then he looked up at the morning star and was awakened. Um, but there's one, there's one translation I like where it says that the, the Buddha looked up at the morning star and it took him. You know, it took him. He, something was let go of, or something was given over to, um, you know. So not so much about getting something, but rather letting what's not true, letting what we don't need fall away. Um, this is where I love that quote from uh, Michelangelo. You know, you've probably heard this of when he was asked, um, you know, as it, as it goes, as it's written somewhere, he was asked, you know, how did you create David? You know, the, this amazing sculpture um, of David. And he said, oh, well, I just took this big piece of marble and I took away everything that wasn't David. <laughs> 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 and in a way, that's what we're doing. We're, we are, we're shedding, we're shedding what's not ours, we're shedding what we don't need. Um, And so we say that um, impermanence can be the link between mindfulness and insight. Um, there's something about just attending moment to moment to our experience. We begin to, um, you know, the impermanent nature of things starts to come into relief. It's like... It's, um, and in, in seeing this, it's like, it's seeing that there isn't anything that we can cling to, rather than, you know, having some process of, well, I shouldn't cling, and, you know, um, we start to see that it, it's, it's, there's nothing there to hold on to. Um, reality doesn't have handles. <coughs> and um, so what we've been trying to do for so long has been frustrating. And I say, oh, that's why it's frustrating. <laughs> you know, and something can be 
something can be released. Um, and I don't know exactly what is released or what is let go of, but I think the way I think about it as some kind of core tension, some kind of core um, like we talked about that kind of being braced against the world, being braced against change. And when we can let go into change or somehow um, release that resistance to the nature of things, um, some fundamental tension can start to be, get resolved. Um, and that tension is what has separated us, maybe separated us from other people or separated us from ourselves. And um, what a relief not to have that tension. And um, it's like we can uh, It's almost like this is what connects in my mind to the sense of the sacred, you know, the sense of the absolute value of things that um, um, you know is is always available when we meet truth with an open heart. You know, so maybe that's a good definition of, of meditation practice. Meeting truth, meeting the truth of the moment with a heart that's open, with a heart that's willing to see, that's willing to be changed, willing to, um, willing to learn. Mm. So there's one other interesting thing just to uh, bring up, which is that um, impermanence uh, depends on time. You know, impermanence is kind of change over time, you know? And time, although it may seem so real, you know, and it's like, what could be more real than time? What could be more, um, you know, it's sort of like the air we, we live in is, you know, is time. Um, time is something we protect. It's my time. Don't waste my time, <laughs> you know. Um, so time has this reality for us, but in fact, uh, maybe time itself is uh, a construct. Time itself depends on something. Time, what, so what does time depend on? Maybe time depends on a sense of self. You know, so, um, impermanence, time, and self are somehow bound together. 
Um, and maybe there's a way that when one of those is sort of seen through, it's like the bundle starts to fall apart. And um, you know, and then we're able to enter into a realm or a perception or an understanding that's outside of time. But there isn't, it isn't marked by time. Um, and I think we all, we all have experienced echoes of that. You know, we certainly know about the dependent nature of time, how, you know, when we're absorbed in something, when we're merged with the activity we're doing, it's like time stands still, where there is no time. Or I can't believe an hour passed that felt like five minutes. Um, unfortunately, the <laughs> reverse is also true. Um, so our experience of time depends on our thinking, depends on our perception, depends on our mind. And so, so something about timelessness. And in the realm of timelessness, um, the way I think about it, and I don't know if this is the, if this is the correct classical Buddhist understanding, but in the realm of timelessness, there is no impermanence. Um, and maybe we can say impermanence is replaced by or is um, a, a more accurate word, maybe emptiness. You know? And these are closely connected. But um, when there's no time and when there's no impermanence, then there's no death because there's no birth. Birth and death depend on time. And so, you know, what is this? What is, what is you know, the possibility of another way of relating, another way of seeing? Um, And then maybe this timelessness has a quality of peace. It has a quality of peace because um, it's no longer dividing, it's no longer, we're not dividing things up anymore. Um, and out of that perception, we can experience something like the perfection of things. You know, um, it's a little bit tricky to say everything is perfect. Um, because there's so much uh, 
There's so much wrong in the world. There's so much suffering in the world. But is there a dimension of perception or a dimension of being that is um, intrinsically whole, intrinsically joyful, intrinsically somehow perfectly what it is? Um, that perfection being independent of the content of the moment. It's this, these expressions of emptiness. Um, Each wave is exactly none other than the water. You know, it has its own shape, it has its own existence, and it just returns to the water which it always was, you know. Um, at the risk of, of ending a talk with a, a saying that's on a <laughs> postcards, <laughs> <laughs> we can't stop the waves, <laughs> but we can learn to surf. <laughs> Have you seen that with the surfing Santa or the surfing monk? <laughs> Um, it's not about escaping the world of impermanence, but somehow um, letting go into it and returning with more care, more openness, more feeling for all of the, all of the, each existence, you know, I think out of emptiness, rather than not minding that bad things happen because, hey, it's all empty, it's, um, we feel more and more, we care more and more. Um, But maybe through emptiness or through seeing that we're more than just this limited self, we have more capacity our own capacity is infinite as well to hold, to hold the suffering of the world. I don't have to hold it in my own limited being, you know. Um, we, there's something dynamic and natural and beautiful in just responding to the world. Um, and. and just bringing it back to our own experience and our own practice, maybe a big part of this is um, giving ourselves the radical permission to feel whatever it is we're feeling. You know, that it's all, it's all, it's all us and it's all, truth and it's all nature and we don't you know and the present moment is a safe place to be and this mind is a safe place to be and can um, can meet whatever arises whatever difficult emotions whatever sense of uh, fear and loss and joy and hope and whatever whatever comes up, 
you know, um, seeing its beauty, seeing um, in Japan there is a um, quite a refined um, reverence for impermanence, and and this is one of the ways that this is you know expressed in the culture is through the um, the yearly blossoming of the sakura, the cherry blossoms. And if you've ever been to, you know, Japan or the, you know, you know the, the, the Japanese gardens here, it's like cherry blossoms open and are in bloom and then fall in the span of maybe a week or two. You know, it's this very brief but intensely beautiful season. And in Japan, this is, this is like one of the main, you know, on the news, there's the forecast of when the blossoms are going to open. <laughs> and you can sort of see it coming in waves from the south to the north. And people plan parties and events and sitting under the blossoms is, you know, this annual um, you know, in a way there's something holy about it of, of remembering impermanence and the fact that the blossoms are so fleeting only intensifies their beauty you know, so you know, each day it changes. And so people sometimes talk, do you prefer to go when they just open or when they're in full bloom? And then I always say, no, no, no. The most beautiful time is, according to me, is when the blossoms have, have died, and, but they're still hanging on the tree. And then this is like in late April. And it's not quite spring yet. And it's still a little bit cold, slightly cold, or slightly windy. And there can be a big gust of wind. And then the, the air is just filled with these red, pink blossoms everywhere. And, um, and then they're on the ground and there is this magic carpet of blossoms on all the sidewalks, you know, because there's something like 100,000 cherry trees in Tokyo. And, and then in the rivers, the rivers are just red, just pink with this, um, with all these blossoms. And, um, and then it's amazing, in the matter of a week, they're gone washed away. The first big rain that comes takes most of them off that have been left. And then there's kind of the start of the rainy season. Um, and so when we can, 
when we can meet impermanence, when we can meet this dimension of who we are, it opens something beautiful. And so it's said that um, mindfulness of impermanence, mindfulness of death, um, has the benefit maybe of, of helping us to have a more peaceful death, being more, more, um, a, a, a more beautiful death. But maybe more importantly, it teaches something about how to live. You know? And this idea that we can't really understand life without in some way coming to terms with death, coming to terms with change. So, thank you very much. Thank you for being here and this exploration of, of, of impermanence. And I wonder if you have any thoughts, questions, um, comments, complaints. <laughs> One thing I will say just is that this is a, it's an important topic and it's a challenging topic. And um, that was part of this idea of giving ourselves permission to feel all the different things that we will feel around this. And that's part of it, it's an important part of it. Um, I think we're not, the goal is not to become sort of invulnerable to change. Um, it's, it's really um, to see things as they are and to see ourselves as we are and um, with a lot of love, a lot of care, a lot of compassion. And, and that's something we can offer to others. The more we've met this in ourselves, then we don't have to fear. You know, when, when someone else is going through transitions or illness or disease or old age or death, you know, that's not foreign to me because I know it's a part of who I am too. And I can meet, meet that person and meet whatever suffering and whatever joy is there without, without fear. Everything you said today really spoke to me because um, 30 years ago, I was in a high-paying job and I was making a lot of money and my body just started breaking down mm. and I had a stroke. Um, I had a brain tumor. I had a lump in my breast. And then I was walking today and I was talking with Buddha and I was asking him, why didn't I, how did I live through all of that? 
And so many other people I walk by, they look so healthy. And then I see others that look like they're on death door. And I was just thinking about all the, the really great leaders that have passed and why that happened to them. And so I was having this conversation about not being able to sleep and then I uh, was suddenly able to sleep. And, and I was just, I, I, there's so much of what you, you spoke about, death and living and permanency and when is the time. And I just, I, I'm not gotten to a point in my life where I, I am satisfied with when it's my time to go. Mm. And I um, understand that there's a lot for me to learn and a lot for me to teach, but the Buddha will tell me what to teach mm. and what, when to keep my mouth shut. <laughs> and, and then everything that I was thinking about today as I went on a walk, you spoke to me. Mm. And so I'm just so blessed with this time. I just started coming here. Mm. I just moved to the neighborhood. Oh, nice. And on my walk, I noticed the building. So I picked up some of the literature. And um, I thought, wow, this is really amazing that I'm just within walking distance to this place. And all of this has been my life for the last 30 years. So oh. I'm truly guided. I mm. ask the Buddha every day to just simply give me guidance. And where you lead me, I will follow. Mm. And I finally got to a point where I would say, where you lead me, I will follow, no questions asked. Mm. Because <laughs> I was, for the longest time I was wondering, why is this happening to me? Mm. What are you trying to teach me? If you want me to go, take me. Mm. And he uh, or she didn't want that. So now I understand even more about timing with what you spoke to. So thank you. Thank you. It's a time well spent. Thank you. Thank you. Beautiful. Thank you. It's interesting that we, we talk about impermanence, um, but impermanence doesn't mean things are random, you know, and things arise due to causes, you know, from the Dharma point of view, things arise due to causes and conditions. So we're all here, we're all together, we've all walked through this door. For some, you know, there's some conditions that were set in place that brought us here. And in the same way, the agency and the control, the, the, the influence that we have over our lives may not be so much in a kind of control, but in just helping to set the conditions, the right supportive conditions. So, you know, coming to meditate and doing you know, all the things that we do sets conditions for other things to happen. So it's, I think your story is a great reminder for me that um, something is operating that's larger than we know. 
We, we do our part. We set the, the conditions, the agency that we have. You know, we each have our own responsibility. And then something larger is at work. You know, the causes and conditions. The Buddha said, you can never know all the causes and conditions that cause one thing to happen. You know, you can't say, oh, well, it's because of that that this happened to you. Or because of that, you got this. It's like, it's immense. It's, you know, this web of, of, of being. So. Thank you. Namaste. Namaste. Well, it's hard to follow after such a beautiful intervention. <laughs> I'll come down to more, kind of down to, down to earth. I was thinking about how you spoke uh, of uh, reflecting you know, on old age, death, all these reminders of impermanence and I was wondering just how do you practice with that uh, at a practical level? Because for me, if I just reflect kind of on these things on a conceptual level, I mean, I know I'm going to die. I know I'm going to, but right now I'm not dying. Uh, right now I'm not old. You know, this isn't much about the present moment. And then there's what you say, like, thinking about those things, yes, it's, it scares me, like, and I, sh I shrink it. I think, mm -hmm. oh, I already have all these, you know, things that spurs up some anxiety. I don't. So, yeah, how to, how to really practice with that mm -hmm. and with it being a present moment experience that we investigate and meet, because that's, that's what you said, right? It, it's, it's about meeting in our present moment experience, mm -hmm. welcoming it, and yeah. yeah, um, yeah. Thank you. So. I mean, thank you, Sandra. So other people may have some responses to that, or can you know, bring your wisdom. I maybe I'll just say um, one of the most valuable things for me in coming to understand these, you know, sometimes they're called heavenly messengers of um, old age, sickness, death, is um, allowing myself to come into contact with more of these, you know, in my life. And you'll see as you get older, more, more will <laughs> come to you. You, don't, you won't have to go very far. <laughs> but... Um, it was, a, it was a shock to me, a time when I was with, with a, a friend who was, you know, he, he had been, he was in hospice, so he was clearly dying. And of course, intellectually, I knew, I mean, he had been quite sick for a number of years, and I knew he was, um, 
in the dying process. But it was a shock to me to realize in a moment that there was still a lot of denial there. Just, and, there, and how this came up is that we were together at his house in conversation, and he had always sort of, in a way, covered his body. And then, and the nature of his illness was that his face, although he, he had lost quite a lot of weight, his, his face was not affected. And then the, the parts of his body that were affected, I couldn't, couldn't usually see. But this day, he was wearing a certain kind of shirt that didn't have sleeves or something, so I could see his arm. And I was looking at a skeleton. And I thought, oh. you know, and I couldn't. It was like this reaction in me. I immediately realized, first of all, there's some denial about this, that I, I haven't been able to face what's really happening. And I also realized that part of that resistance was that he was a mirror for me. And I was, it was a reminder of my mortality. And I didn't like that, you know. And um, so for myself, I know it has been incredibly enriching and beneficial to um, be with people who have, you know, who are in the dying process and friends and, and um, just as a way of um, meeting my own fear. And, and it's in a, you know, it can be a wonderful service and a wonderful connection. Um, but I, I will say to this day, whenever someone who I'm close to passes away, I'm always shocked. <laughs> you know, no matter how you know, sick they've been, there's, it's this, what? You know, um, so it's, I've, I've found that to be a, a um, really powerful exploration. Um, I don't know, for, 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 for you, how do you, what are ways you practice with these messengers? Um, Illness. Um. I have a, I have constant conversations with Buddha, mm. and I walk and meditate. And I uh, walk and I meditate, and that's pretty much how I spend my days. Oh, and I love television. So <laughs> there, there's, a lot of pro, there's a lot of education on TV if you yeah. pick the right programs. So um, that's how I spend my days. And I'm, I'm uh, 64, and I just have come to, to a place where I have trust and faith that when it's my time to go, it's my time to go. Because... There's, I'm needed someplace else. Mm. And so I, um, I stopped worrying about it. And then when I stopped worrying about it, and I, um, 
my daughter is in a great relationship. Her, she, her, she, my granddaughter is doing really well in school, and um, the rest of my family is healthy. And so I, I feel truly blessed. And so I feel like if, if it's my time to go, then it's my time to go. But I'm not ready to go yet. <laughs> I, have a lot, I have a lot more learning and teaching that I would like to do. So um, that's the place I'm in right now. Thank you. Thank Beautiful. you. So um, I um, have had, unfortunately, a similar story as Sandy next to me. Um, in more recent, in the past three um, and four years. And um, I meditate a lot every day. Um, and I'm still in the middle of it. So um, I do find that all the things that were bothering me before that um, you know, most people are caught in, and I was as well. Just you know, I've become much more trivial compared to um, facing your mortality constantly. Um, but I, even though I'm not quite where I would like to be, I. I, I've seen over the course of the years of being more kind of accepting and it had any really changed things. Um, it, it um, you know, I, I think it kind of like reminds me of, of a really very scary experience I had maybe 20 years ago, I was um, in the Himalayas in Ladakh and I was visiting Buddhist monasteries. And um, I, I was very, very sick. And I was in very high altitude because I decided I wanted to go to the, this place. It was like 19,000 feet. Um, but I couldn't walk anymore. And I was really scared. But I remember I just lie down and I looked at the sky and I looked at all the mountains and they were the most beautiful mountains I had ever seen. And I just felt, wow, what a beautiful place to die. Mm. But it was that release. Mm. And I was actually able to catch myself up you know, an hour later and, and, keep, and keep going and find a guide who had, like, left me alone. Um, but, yeah, so that's that feeling of, like, I think I experienced that acceptance at that moment of my situation. And that's what I felt a couple times, you know, now. And it's kind of like a remembering of, mm. oh, I know what... You know, so when you were talking about at the end of your talk, you know, about that, um, it's not perfection, but it's um, stopping to go against the grain. 
you know, and in that kind of like stillness, yes, there is peace. Um, it's it's very hard thing to do. It takes a lot of courage, but it's it's like the ultimate peace. Mm. Yeah. Thank you for this day. Hi. Uh, I want to bring it uh, back to the question of how, if you're young, how to do it. I'm older, and you have a lot more opportunity. Well, actually, <laughs> everyone talks about old age is great, but one thing is your friends die. Mm. That's one thing that, I mean, people go before you, so it's hard. Um, but moving back to, if I picture myself younger, how, how, how would I do this, you know? How would I be aware? Uh, I think... One thing is sort of like what you talked about with the um, cherry blossoms, you know, realizing how fragile that they're going, and just being on the lookout in your life for examples of when you have to let go. It could be something, I, I don't think it has to be like some deep realization experience. It can be just that you notice it. Um, I noticed it at work. <laughs> I teach English second language, and I just retired a couple weeks ago. And at work, a lot of people, we all develop our own materials and make things and stuff. And a lot of people, when they retire, <laughs> I've noticed this for quite a few years, they start pushing this stuff on the other. You've got to use these cards I've developed. You know, you've got... <laughs> now, and, and, and I sort of go along with people, you know, and so I had all this stuff that I never used. <laughs> it was, and I swore I wasn't going to do that. But I did it a little bit with one person. But I saw that um, some of it is... I, I mean, I really felt that was it. Like, you just want, you kind of want your life to go on as a teacher because you develop this cool stuff. You want some other teacher out there using it, you know? The idea that they might not be into it is, uh, you know, you wouldn't think such a thing. Um, but uh, I think that, and any kind of uh, thing that's ending. I mean, um, when I first started teaching, I had a real hard time at the end of the semester. I was actually saying goodbye to all these people. I was really attached to them. It was painful, you know? Now I, I'm a little, I can sort of do it, you know, and, and do things with them to kind of bring it to an end. But um, I, I would say if you're younger, uh, just to be on the lookout for things that are ending, what kinds of things are ending, and then how are you responding, you know? Um, yeah, and I guess I would feel as, as being someone older, people were really nice to me when I was younger. They, I mean, they helped me with work and stuff. And so I just feel like it's my turn, and I just, I just see it as an oppor opportunity. Like yesterday, you know, at Pete's on Fridays between 1 and 3, you can get two drinks for one. You can pay for one, you get one free. And I ran into this homeless person, so I said, well, what do you want? I <laughs> so I got him a hot chocolate. I'm, into, uh, I'm addicted to matcha green tea latte. Um, and, and, you know, you, I, it's like I feel like... Uh, I don't know how much longer I'm going to be here. I mean, as far as I know, my health is okay. But, you know, I, I've received a lot of good things in my life. I mean, not just physical things. People have been real nice to me, you know, in general. And, some bad things, but in general. And so I just felt, you know, you just, it's sort of like, I, I feel like it's a way of working on impermanence in that, um, how do I explain this? I, it's just like a flow. Like, okay, I'm going to go get something at Pete's, and I'll go get something for you. You know, like, uh, I, I didn't think that way so much before. It just, it's just like there's this flow of stuff going on. There's things you give people, physical things, or you, 
say hi or something, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, like with homeless people, the thing they say is they feel like nobody looks at us. So I don't always give money, but I say, hey, hi, sorry, I can't do it, you know. But I look them in the face mm -hmm. when I go by. Um, that's what I feel mostly. I feel freer now. Just, just what I can give, I just give and go on. Beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. Hi, this, uh, this topic really spoke to me. I've had massive changes in my life. Um, similar to Sandy, there was a time when I made a lot of money, I had a lot of power, and that went away because I got sick. And I thought I would always be like that and always be in that position. And then it was like pulling the rug out from under me, and I felt like I had fallen off a cliff into an abyss. Where was my identity? Who was I? Because my whole identity was wrapped up in my profession. And so I went through that whole change, and part of the illness had chronic pain. And I was a, I, I was a physician, oddly enough, and I specialized in chronic pain. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> okay, so I knew all these tricks. I knew all the drugs. I knew all the procedures and all that stuff. And I, I studied the world literature on this disease that I had where there was nothing to help it. There was no research anywhere in the world. Even before Google, I did it manually, and I looked at stuff in other languages. And there was nothing. And they didn't have a good handle on chronic pain management either. Um, so I was left, and that was like 20 years ago. I was left in that situation, and that's when I thought, you know what? I can't do it those ways. They're, they don't work. I had this change. I have to work in a different framework. And I realized that the pain signals are getting integrated in my brain they're coming up from the lower centers, getting integrated in my brain. What can I do to stop that integration? I, I came at it from a scientific point of view. And I took, um, I got certified by the San Francisco Academy of Clinical Hypnosis mm. in medical hypnosis. And then I took it a step further and I went to a meditation teacher and, and who taught TM and, in a very strict way. I was just learning. I had never meditated before. But something in me said it's akin to deep hypnosis. Mm -hmm. And so I was learning auto-hypnosis because I only wanted to use it on myself. And um, so I saw this teacher. I went up to San Francisco every day for quite a while. And he said, you have to meditate five times a day without fail for 20 minutes each time. And I had never done it before in my life. And I was in chronic pain. Now, think of it. That was a very tall order for me. Um, I did it. I was very determined. And a lot of times I would just sit there, and my mind was going round and round, and the usual things were going round and round. Nothing happened. But I'd sit there with my eyes closed and try to meditate. I even, <laughs> And then eventually, from doing it five times a day for 20 minutes... I entered into real meditation, and it became more and more powerful. The more I did it, 
the practice gave me the technique. It came just from brute force, from brute force practice. I even meditated on the BART train, and I was going to San Francisco. I ended up in Oakland. (laughs) But, but, you know, it worked. (laughs) And um, so... That, that was one part of my life. I, I know I'm going on too long, but I just had so much experience with this change, and it's painful. And um, throughout the time when I had my career, I was married to a man who had the same career, and we were both wealthy and powerful and did everything. And we traveled the world together, and we were the perfect mates and he was the perfect love. I was just so in love with this man. And things changed. He became addicted to narcotics, and his personality changed, and he wasn't the man I had married at all. And then later on down the line, and and I thought, you know, I love this man. I married him for better and for worse. He has a problem, I'll deal with it. He He got clean. It wasn't that problem, but it was his personality had changed. And he became distant and remote and isolated and isolated me. I felt like I was in a prison. And he became verbally abusive, and that was hard to take. And so in reaction to that, I got depressed. And that wasn't fun. And then eventually he became physically abusive, He did that three times, and I was out of there. 30-year marriage, and I blew out of there. I said, I can't deal with this. This is not right. I have to protect myself. And so I left the love of my life. And that was the second big cataclysm in my life. So I've experienced a lot of change. And I am, again embracing the practice to help me deal with this change. Thank you. Kaylin, did you? Yeah. I guess the the question that came up was... um, how do you practice with death, aging, and sickness? And uh, a couple of things that came to mind are what the Stoics do. So when you encounter someone, you think that they're going to end, or anything. So like a car, or anything you value. The minute you're interacting with it, you visualize it ending or dying or going away. Uh, and then it's kind of like the cherry blossoms, and you're bringing that to the forefront of your mind. Of it. Um, and the other thing that kind of came to mind was, um, I guess, on the retreat with Biko and Alio, something like where you're visualizing your own mortality. You can kind of picture your sense of the sense of the skeleton, and then in the, that you're going to go in the ground, or the sense of this of your last breath. You know, like this could be your last breath. Kind of bringing that into the forefront. Uh, and then even if that doesn't resonate with you, knowing that you're dying, each breath you're getting closer and closer and closer to death because it's a process. Um, things like that. Uh, thank you, thank you Kayla. Yeah. yeah, thank you. 
I remember on that retreat, um, this monk, the teacher, Analio, who's this wonderful monk scholar, and he said, there was a young man, I can't remember what, he's, what the question was, but something like, I don't, you know, with each breath, I don't feel like it's, I'm one breath closer to death. And then the teacher said, just hold your breath. <laughs> Keep holding it. <laughs> You'll start to feel something. Um, but, um, yeah, thank, thank you, Caitlin. I think it's on. Um, I had, uh, this is a few years ago, I had a, a mentor of mine that, that I really cherished. Um, he, he passed away. Um, and one of the things I did uh, shortly after, um, I, I like to create art. Um, and so I took a photograph of him and I took um, you know charcoal. It was just black and white, um, you know erasers and charcoal. And um, I created I don't know it was like an eight by ten um, drawing. And I just kind of studied his face and and drew it. And and somehow like the photograph was like a snapshot in time, but with the charcoal, with the lighting, and sort of watching it appear on the page, it was like oh there you are. <laughs> Um, and it it made me think of um, like a a previous lesson we had on um, like clinging and attachment, and I think in some ways just seeing someone's face um, brings a pack of memories that are sort of I, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> um, so I think that's part of it. It's like if you don't see them, you're afraid you'll lose um, the memories. Mm-hmm. Thank you. I had some... How do I sound? There we go. I had some thoughts about um, kind of practicing with us as a young person as well. It reminded me that there was a story that I'm going to heavily butcher from Ajahn Chah. He was holding up a ceramic mug and he was saying, like, this mug already has a crack in it. Like, we can't see it yet. It hasn't appeared yet. But at some point in time, we're going to have this mug and it's going to get dropped and it's going to crack and that will be the end of the mug. Um, And knowing that the mug is going to break, um, I can really appreciate the beauty of this mug right now as it is. he said, no, look, if I had a plastic mug, you know, I could bang it around, throw it against a wall, do whatever, it's not going to break. But it, it, the nature of this mug is not plastic, it's ceramic. Um, and it's, it's going to get dropped and it's going to break sometime. And then he went on to say, our, our lives are like that as well. Like, there's this fatal crack that's already inside of us. And at some point, you know, we too are going to break and that will be the end of it. Um, and knowing and understanding that, maybe that can help us to appreciate life more. Thank you. Um, 
So first, I wanted to thank you, just give you some gratitude for your, your wisdom and your presence. You had such a wonderful impact on my practice. Um, I guess I struggle a lot with the aging one just because like I have youth and it's so prized in this culture and uh, I guess knowing that it's fleeting, I'll just take advantage of it while it's here. Um, yeah. Um, it's, thank you. It's, yeah, thank you for your comment. Um, one of the um, one of the things that interested me about the Buddhist story, which I talked about a little bit, was that was the fact of having a parent die when he was young, and I can relate to that a little bit. My my father passed away when I was young, and not as young as the Buddha, but when I was twelve or thirteen, and um, there's also a number of other Buddhist um, teachers like Dogen, who was one of the Japanese teachers who's uh, lost a parent when he was young. And I think one of the ways I think about loss is that um, sometimes this, this phrase comes up, what is the gift of loss? And, or someone once asked me that. I can't remember why, how I have this in my mind. But it was like, what is the gift of loss? And then um, the answer was clarity. You know, what can be the gift of loss is clarity. And I think it's maybe it's not a coincidence that um, for some people, not, not all, but for some people who... Um, begin practice when they're very young, have had experiences of loss that um, have put them on a search maybe earlier than they otherwise would. And um, if you're on your search and you're young and you haven't had any big loss, God bless you. <laughs> you have better karma than most of us. Um, but um, I think... So that's, that's, that's one thing that just comes up around youth for me. And then the other one is, maybe it's connected, but this idea that wisdom doesn't, maybe the closest correlation with wisdom is not age necessarily, but uh, proximity to death, you know? And it's that closeness to death, either in oneself or another can maybe be a, a condition for wisdom or a condition for, for looking in a way. Um, um, I don't know, those are, some, those are some thoughts. But I think, um, I also think that when I was younger than I am now, um, and 
I think certain things come from life experience that I hadn't experienced before. That, um, so I think when, when you're young, you have the blessings and the challenges that come with being young. And when you're older, you have the blessings and the challenges, the difficulties of being older. Each phase is its own complete thing. And so I would say enjoy Enjoy the age you are, and um, and just wait. <laughs> <You'll> <laughs> it's this. It's the yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, in my case, um, I. Uh, was diagnosed with cancer 17 years ago. And at that time, my kid was only two years old. Mm. So that changed my whole perspective of life. You know, I was like moving up on my career in high tech. And I, uh, when I recovered from all the surgeries, I just took I just, it just changed completely. I enjoyed every day that I spent with my kid, mm-hmm. even right now. She's 19 years old, and she just, she's here for the summer from college. And I just try to spend as much time as I can with her and enjoy the, the day, the moments with her. It changed my mm-hmm. whole perspective in life. Because mm-hmm. I know it's, it's impermanent. Yes. Thank you. I feel like your daughter gave you a reason for living and Mm. and getting healthy. Because my daughter did that for me. And I didn't want to, I didn't want her to grow up without me. And so, I, and I didn't want anybody else taking care of her. And so um, I had conversations with the Buddha that you gotta make me healthy because I have work to do here and I'm not ready to go. But if you wanna take me, then I'll get to a place where I accept that. And that was kind of my constant conversation on a daily basis, all day long. And I just started doing everything different. I started walking. I started eating better. Um, I became a vegetarian. um, And I started practicing Buddhism Mm -hmm. and really spending time with it and really trying to understand what the Buddha was saying to me and trying to teach me. And now I'm at a place where I feel like I've, I got there. Yeah, thank you. Well, it's, it's interesting that each of these messengers, you know, the illness, old age, mortality, um, maybe there's a gift in each of these if we're able to somehow see it, to see it that way. And it's not, you know, I also, I know people who have gone through very serious, similar illnesses, and their whole goal 
was to get back to exactly the same mindset they had before. <laughs> you know, so it's like there's something in us that has to be willing to change, has to be open to that, to being, to allowing ourselves to be changed by something. Thank you. Yeah. You know, it's interesting what you just said because that's, I think, what you said about your friend, I think just everybody reacts that way. What happens is your first reaction was, oh, I want my life back exactly the way it was. But then you change. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that you bypass that stage. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I think you, you get wise and, and, and then eventually you're like, well, maybe I don't want my life back. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I want to thank you very much. Thank you for the sharing, which was really beautiful and so special. And I, I think it's clear this topic, you know, it touches all of us. And that's, you know, that's this universal piece of it, that it's something that brings us together. It's something we share. And I just thought to end with this um, verse, which is... Um, I'm, my understanding is that this is chanted in Thailand and in Southeast Asia um, at funerals and at other um, times of transition. And I think there's a, there are a number of different English ways of translating it, but the, the one of them is all conditioned things are impermanent. They arise and they pass away. To be in harmony with this truth is the greatest happiness. All conditioned things are impermanent. They arise and they pass away. To be in harmony or to come to peace with this truth is the greatest happiness. So, thank you. Conditioned things are anything we can experience, anything that can be experienced in this body and mind. So, um, yeah, <laughs> includes everything. <laughs> thank you. Thank you.